what is genocide genocide actually covered under a convention of the united nations is a convention on the crime and punishment of uh, genocide and uh, what is happening to hindus in bangladesh today or it happened in kashmir and it's continuing along even in a country which is supposed to be hindu majority uh, actually <clears throat> creates very curious situations and to discuss that curious situation we have with us Pandit Satish Sharma ji and Shri Vibhuti Jha. So let's subscribe to the channel quickly and have a look at the description where you can support us and follow us. And let's go into the discussion proper. Namaste and uh, welcome all viewers and welcome Padishtri and Vibhuti Jha Ji. Namaste, Namaste. Pranamji, Namaskar and Jai Shri Ram to everybody. Uh, today yes. is Valmiki Jayanti, so I thought I'd get that in quickly. Oh yes, uh, so happy Valmiki Jayanti to everyone. Good that you reminded me. Padiji, we are discussing this curious situation, and it seems that uh, Hindus, whether they are majority or minority, they are always seem to be getting subjected to this uh, phenomena, phenomenon called uh, genocide. But uh, if you look at uh, the convention, it says that I'll just read it out for uh, all the viewers also. This is. Uh, uh, Convention on the Prevention and Punishment to the Crime of Genocide, which was passed by General Assembly Resolution 260A, bracket 3, of 9 December 1948, and entry into force 12th January 1951. And uh, says that uh, the contracting parties confirm that genocide, whether committed in time of peace or in time of war, is a crime under international law, which they undertake to prevent and to punish. Uh, that's Article 1. And then Article 2 says, in the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national ethical, racial, or religious group. As such, A, killing members of the group, B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to the members of the group, C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about his physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group now after that of course the punishment and uh, several other uh, articles so my question to you under j is that uh, even though the term that is used within this convention is uh, a group but in practice uh, it is supposed to apply to minorities that is how the 
international jurisprudence has evolved over the years. But we find Hindus, whether they are in majority or in minority, seem to be one group which are always subjected to uh, this kind of uh, discrimination or this kind of destruction. Do you agree? Uh, well, I think it's actually simpler than that. This is simply hatred. We can use fancy litigious words, but I think the evidence in front of us is that these are hate crimes. They're inspired by nothing other than barbaric hatred. And the, the source of hatred is always something that we should give a lot of attention to. We have been seeing the Hindu community, which is the indigenous civilizational community of the whole of that South Asian region being targeted by hate, hatred, whether it's, um, we, we, we call it colonization, whether we call it um, jihad or um, conversion, the driving impetus behind it, we have to recognize is nothing other than hatred. And I think we have seen enough of this to start to be able to contextualize and put into words exactly where hatred comes from, who plants the seeds, who waters those seeds, and who is then ready to reap the harvest. What uh, has happened in Bangladesh is recognizable and entirely predictable. It is nothing other than the slaughter of the indigenous population of that region. The, the definition of gen genocide which you've shared is also very clear. And the only aspect which I think separates what's happened to the Hindu community there from genocide in the conventionally accepted sense is that it spread over time. But if you take the lens of time out of it and just make a, a linear list of all of the atrocities that have been inflicted, this is genocide. The actions of the state indicate that this scale of genocide could not happen without acts of commission or acts of omission by the Bangladeshi state. And so I think it's a valid proposition that the Bangladeshi state is an active agent in the genocide of Bangladeshi Hindus. Right. Uh, so that, that was a, a, a clear-cut reference to Bangladesh. Vibhutiji, I would propose that uh, according to this convention, even the attempt to marginalize and destroy the vestiges and the culture of uh, the Hindu minority, even in a place like the United States, would also be covered by this definition. Do you agree? <laughs> you know, the most important clause in the entire thing that you read, the intent to destroy. Now, that intent to destroy is a remarkably classic English way to obfuscate the matter. I mean, how can I ever forget that uh, President Obama, a very honorable president of the United States, a very lovable guy, very loved guy, who said on CBS interview about the Benghazi fiasco that happened in four in U.S. you know principals were you know foreign service guys and ambassador were killed by ISIS guys. Obama told the CBS interview, Hillary did not intend to hurt America or hurt them. My, my immediate response was, damn it, who is questioning the intent? It is the incompetency was in the, in the, in the question. So English word, English is a very funny language. 
as we all know, P-H-U-N-N-Y. And as a, as a result of which, it's very difficult to interpret the words that are used. So the moment you say intent, then everything is up in the air because you can never prove intent one way or the other. The classic example was then when the KPs were eliminated from Kashmir area, one of the reasons I asked the, some of the very vocal Kashmiri pundits here, how come you didn't know you are appealing here for United Nations to include uh, Kashmir uh, genocide as genocide, whereas our own government in India did not recognize it. He said, we went to the Human Rights Commission and Indian government authorities, and they said, this is the sad, sad part, the Indian government itself said that we cannot prove the intent, that they wanted to actually deliberately planned way wanted to throw you out it can't be proven in a court of law go let's go figure that out that's absolute so, nonsense <laughs> that's this, against the principle of, of what is called mens rea how the mens rea is exactly, exactly so the question here is that when indian government itself cannot declare the killing of its own people by a certain sect of people why are we asking somebody else to prove it, to, to declare that? That's the issue that I am always confronting myself with. I'm responsible for myself. I'm responsible for my family. I'm responsible for what I do. So knowing what we know, and I, I, I come to your question, the discrimination that we are facing here or anywhere in the world is driven by laws, regulations, which are made by Abrahamic faith people. We are not a religion. We are a way of life. So they always hate us for being Murti Puja guys, idol worshippers. We are not part of their system. And that's how we have to begin to make certain declarations, knowing what we know. What others are doing, they are doing what they have to do. We have to do what we must. And I will implore upon everybody here is to kind of re-look at the matter. Same United Nations human rights violations. Does China give a damn? Nobody says anything about it. So how valid, how, yeah, there is a statute that exists. But that is, is that statute honored, respected, applied, punished in any way? Has China been punished at all? Nothing whatsoever. Pakistan has been punished for 2611. None whatsoever. They are still asking for evidence. So my question is that, yes, United States you know, the laws are interpreted in a particular way, then can never be proved. I didn't mean to hurt you. It's a classic, you know, explanation for everything. I didn't mean to use the say, use the word what I wanted to say. That's where I would, I would stop now by saying this, that let's kind of, uh, knowing what we know, the way we are being victimized, the way we are being targeted, we are under a targeted attack. Let's not miss that out. And we have talked about it in the past also, and we will talk about it again. And we will talk about it today. Why? Are we a threat to them? Or is it just hate? Or is science and technology exposing their mental hollowness? That's what I want to you know, focus on. Yes. Thank you. Uh, let me go back to Pandit uh, <clears throat> Satishji. Uh, <clears throat> My submission to you is that, uh, notwithstanding the little quibble about intent that uh, Bhutiji brought in, 
I, I would still think that actually that helps us in the sense that the uh, actual act of uh, uh, commissions are uh, easy to prove. That's for everyone to see. And uh, the hate that is involved in this is actually written in their scriptures. So why do we need to even prove the intent? It's very much there in the scriptures. Sundarji, we are slowly beginning to come to terms with the fact that we deal with issues and ideas and problems with a sober, reflective, intellectual, dharmic point of view. But I came across a statement by a gentleman called Bonhoeffer in which he talks about the manner in which intelligent people need to engage with stupidity. And it's quite remarkable. He puts forward the statement that you cannot reason with people who have chosen stupidity as their means, as their modus of navigating um, life and uh, they're making their choices. And we have never understood this. We have always tried to appeal to people who are civilizationally and clinically stupid and make decisions on bases which are entirely irrational. And we have tried to engage them as though they were rational beings, individuals, cultures, and societies. How long is it going to take us to realize that that doesn't work? This is the first question that every Hindu needs to ask. The second, you have talked about the evidence. The evidence is clear cut. I talked about time and um, a span of time. Let's roll the clock back for a moment to the genesis of Bangladesh as it was envisaged. And even at that moment in time, if you look at the acts of commission, you can see the state acting in a manner which was criminal. It was um, contrary to the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. And if I can be specific, um, there was a study in 2009 that recorded since 1971 2.6 million acres of land for which the title was held by Hindu families was seized by the Bangladeshi state. So this is ethnic cleansing. This is a wholesale act of de depriving an indigenous population of the very land upon which their ancestors have existed. In addition to that, they, this report and survey put forward that 1.2 million households has been seized again by the Bangladeshi state. That's households of Hindus. That's ethnic cleansing. That's clear intent. And even at that time, the figures I've managed to get hold of, 67.3% had been grabbed by members of the ruling BNP party, the, uh, the dominant political party. 13.9% had been grabbed by parliamentarians of the Awami League. And we are today seeing a government which is led by the Awami League. If they had any genuine remorse, any genuine desire to be included amongst the family of democratic nations and to make some recognition and restitution, why haven't they returned what was seized illegally? Some of your viewers may have come across what used to be called the um, Enemy Property Act, where basically Hindu homes could be seized legally without having to prove title, just by declaring a Hindu an enemy of the state. And vast amounts of property were seized in that manner. When the uh, government, the Awami government uh, came into force, it changed the name from the enemy 
Property Acts to the Vested Property Act, but in essence, it still continued. All of these are acts of ethnic cleansing. And when you can do that sort of activity legally, it's only one step away from actually dehumanizing a population to such a degree that it's perfectly reasonable and permitted within the state to hack these people with machetes right in the middle of nine days of celebrations of the divine feminine. It's not coincidence, it's not an accident of fate that they chose this time to do this in. It is a direct assault on the psyche, on the society, the fabric of that community. When it comes to Navratri next year round, Durga Puja next year round, do you think the Hindu community, if there is any community left there, are going to be looking forward to that celebration with joy and delight, worshipping the land and Shakti? Or are they going to be fearful of the madness that may well be unleashed against them? This is ethnic cleansing. The intent is there. And I would submit that the state-supported aspect is also proven by evidence. So this is uh, the language which we as a Sanatani community need to now become familiar with. This is the only language which will make our appeals heard. Everything else doesn't seem to have borne any fruit at all. Okay, Vibhutiji, <clears throat> uh, I think uh, uh, Panditji has made his point absolutely clear, supported by all evidence and statistics as far as Bangladesh is concerned. I have been talking to the uh, Kashmiri people and uh, you must be watching. I think we've had uh, quite a few interactions on the Jaipur Dialogues itself. And uh, they seem to indicate that uh, the denial of genocide actually results in repeat of genocide. And therefore, it is of utmost importance and of utmost value that uh, we seize upon a genocide and at least make an attempt and uh, try and ensure that a genocide is declared as a genocide, as a first step. Because if you do not declare a genocide as a genocide, then you would be condemned to repeat it. Can't agree with you more, Sanjay Ji, on this matter. You know, the question is, who will declare it? Who are we banking upon to declare it? 151 nations are signatories to this uh, agreement. 44 are not. Many of them are African countries, Asian countries, and some of them in uh, other part of the world. Question is, is that who will declare it? Are we waiting for United Nations to declare an incompetent body as on date? Or we have to declare it. That's the important issue to do that. And we have to take precipitate action on that. In the absence of a, uh, an action, we keep only wailing and crying. That's the point which I'm trying to talk to our audience here and talk, discuss with us all, all. What do we need to do? The greatest threat to our dharma <clears throat> is the belief that someone else will protect us. Nobody else is going to protect us. It's our responsibility to preserve our heritage. And Bangladesh, are what an ungrateful nation that we were responsible for giving the people the freedom that they were, you know, they were suffering from under the West Pakistan rule. And these people are turning against us, Hindus, 
the Hindu nation, the secular nation that gave you, uh, they fought for you and got you freedom, you are turning against that particular belief system? I mean, where is Indian government today or in the past? You know, we have not been ever been motivated to take action. And that's what is our risk. You know, it's a, something somebody very interestingly pointed out a few days ago that the jihadis and Islamists have learned the lessons of Atma and soul, as Krishna said in chapter 2, giving lesson to Arjun on when he was struck with the Klevium scenario, that body is elsewhere, soul is all that matters. You will be doing your duty in dharmic duty to be, you know, freeing the bodies, the soul will find itself in its own way. The Islamists, the jihadis have copied that ideology so well. That's why they indoctrinate them to kill. They, they love to die. And we Hindus indulge in Palayan Vad to save our body. Think about it. It's a very important thought that came to my mind based on a conversation with somebody else. We run away. And they know that practice. They have understood us very well. Where is the will to fight? So declaration of genocide is one part. But what is this next part? Who will take the action? That's another part which is important. But declaring somebody guilty doesn't mean our newspapers are, it is so abomination. It's such a sad thing. Our newspapers carry the headline news that Aryan Khan will be remanded, has been remanded to further judicial custody. I mean, is that news? Come on, man. Now, this is this is a this is a deplorable moment for me in that sense. Aryan Khan is news. Killing in Bangladesh is not a headline news when I go into Times of India and Indian Express headlines to see the news. That's what is bothersome in the country like we are, that we, declaration of genocide, it has to be done by us. And we have to arise and assert. We can't be, can't be complaining all the time. <laughs> Those people are vicious people. They want to destroy us. How much more evidence do we need? And I'm talking about the, my famous favorite phrase, knowing what we know now. Who are we going to ask for help if we don't help ourselves? This is the important issue that Bangladesh <clears throat> break relationship with Pakistan and Bangladesh. We may not have the choice of neighbor, but we have a choice of friend. When uh, we, we declare them person non grata, country non grata, why not? If they're indulging in a violence like that, let's at least the U.S. State Department made a statement today. U.S. State Department made the statement that the, the celebration of Durga Puja is the inherent fundamental right and freedom of religion. This cannot happen. This must not be allowed to happen. Where are we in action? That's my that's my lament. That's my lament with everyone, including you, I, and everybody who is watching this. Where is the government? Where are the people saying something or doing something about it? I'm not saying go and kill equal number of Muslims. No, that's certainly not the issue here. The issue is that what precipitate action we are taking. Instead of always crying and wailing, aisa nahi hona chahiye. Jo ho raha hai, usko dekhna hai. Jo, nahi, jo hota hai, wahi ho raha hai. Nahi hona chahiye, what in terms of should, so many things shouldn't happen, but they do. What do we do about that? So I would say it's time for government of India to take an action on this matter. 
we to declare Bangladesh an ungrateful nation. Let's recognize China is also playing its own game. They are encircling India. You have Stalin, Jagan, Vijayan, you have Mamta, you have, you know, Udav Thakre, you have Arvind Kejriwal, they're all puppets of, you know. <clears throat> we have enemy in our own house. People who don't give a damn whether Hindus lose their life or not. They are creating a condition of dissatisfaction between you, me, and everybody else. We have to confront the evil. I mean, this is not the time for puja, arati, and bhajan. This is the time for action. Enemy is at the door. They are challenging us. And we, if they are here to cut us our, cut our throat, we don't have to respect them with atipi devo bhava. Very strong words by Vibhuti ji. Uh, rather uncharacteristic, I would say. No, it is very... It's generally quite diplomatic. <laughs> no, it is... It, your, your anger sometimes has but, to... Uh, yeah. Padaji, do you agree with this prescription? I do wholeheartedly. Um, and it's with a great deal of sadness that I do, because what this does establish, without any doubt, is that the institutions of international law have reneged on the responsibility that they had shouldered. You know, the United Nations was only formed for one purpose, and that was to diminish the ever-present fear of violence and genocide and war occurring amongst uh, civilization, uh, amongst nations. But we have to recognize that they have not acted, if uh, you've mentioned uh, Pakistan, but uh, the Taliban, have now almost been rehabilitated into having dialogue with former um, declarants of, uh, of Taliban as being a, a hateful terrorist state. And yet you can see nothing has happened. Not only has nothing happened, they have been equipped with um, millions of dollars of worth of military hardware. Where is international law in all of this? Where is the ear which is hearing the voice of the Afghan people? Those Afghan people who were encouraged to adopt um, a European set of values and then hung out to dry and not even evacuated. This is the international community to whom uh, we are hoping to appeal. I don't think that is a reasonable proposition. You know, there is a saying in the, um, the military, the American uh, military machine, where they say it's better to apologize after the event than to seek permission before the event. And you can see that the Taliban have certainly adopted that as a policy. Everybody seems to have adopted that as a policy, except for the Hindu community. Now, it's, it's a shameful state of affairs that the majority community, which appointed supposedly by election, democratically, a dharmic, friendly government, is thinking now of having to appeal across the world to non-Indian agencies for recognition that their community, the same indigenous community of that whole area, is now facing genocide? Doesn't that strike anybody as a ridiculous state of affairs? That, you know, we, I, I have been talking to many people and they have said, Satishji, how can we appeal to the United Nations? And I'm thinking the United Nations, which is really a cabal of, um, dominated by former colonial powers, they're going to sit quietly and laugh at these Hindus who are coming to the UN asking for protection when their own government is unwilling to extend 
that same hand of protection within Bharat itself. This is the ridiculous statement uh, stage that we find ourselves in. And bearing all of that in mind and taking it on board, what do we do? I think we have to recognize, go back to very simple fundamental laws of existence. We have to recognize that the duty of protecting the boundary and the lives of any population rests within the government. This is what we delegate to them. This is what we authorize them to do. And the, the transaction is that we will not bear arms. We will not assume force as a response because we give the government the authority and the resources to do that. When a government ceases to do that, natural law requires every human being to protect and defend themselves. This is the consequence. The second consequence is that why on earth should any population pay taxation to a government which can't even protect their life and refuses to extend equality to them? Those two understandings are enough to cause the collapse of a society that no longer do state instruments provide protection and therefore why should one have taxation when there is no representation? We are moving inexorably, almost unavoidably towards those conclusions being the conclusions that the Hindu community have to make. Because this is not about the Indian community. This is about the Hindu community. And that is a very, very scary and frightening prospect, which is why what Vibhutiji has said resonates with me, and I do agree. You know, it's not as though the enemy, the um, those who are dispensing this violence, it's not as though they haven't clearly articulated what their intention was. You know, way back even as in 2009, Jamaat-e Islami in Bangladesh had announced their intention to combine Bangladesh's Cox, Cox's Bazaar, I think, was where the atrocities first started, to combine that with Myanmar's Arakan district. They wanted to see that merge with Bandarbans. The three of them, Jamaat-e Islami, said this is going to be an Islamic community. We are going to take over this. And it was on the 23rd of September 2009 when I think um, atrocities occurred and 21 cases were brought by the government, the Bangladeshi government, and there were 4,000 individuals and anonymous persons named in those cases. What happened to those cases? Oh, they just withered by the wayside. No justice was given. It's crystal clear people who are doing these heinous acts and the organizations which are supporting them have clearly placed their intention before everybody. And yet if no government is willing to step forward and if no international body is willing to acknowledge a responsibility to protect the Hindu community against these genocides which have been going on in recent memory for a hundred years at least and beyond that we have records of beyond that then the Hindu community needs to recognize it's on its own what do we do this is the next step before we get to that decision I have been putting forward a proposition that many are now discussing and one of those is that there must be international economic sanctions against Bangladesh. It's not a democracy. Why should it have the benefit of being afforded the respect and the diplomatic status that other democracies have earned when it is doing this against the indigenous population within its borders? There must be economic sanctions. And if one considers the economic sanctions that have been leveraged against Israel, what has happened against the Hindu community in Bangladesh and Pakistan is a totally different order 
of atrocities to the allegations that were leveled at Israel. If you consider that the whole of the West ganged up to destroy the Iraqi regime on the basis of weapons of mass destruction, which never materialized on the allegations that Saddam had been using chemical weapons against his own civilization or his own population. What did the, the Western world do? It gathered all of its armed forces, resources, and entered into two Gulf Wars. What's happened in Bangladesh is proven. It's established. There is evidence. There is video evidence of the atrocities that have happened in Bangladesh specifically, and also in Kashmir and in Pakistan. And yet the West is silent. Hindu lives on that evidence do not matter to the Western institutional power structures. We need to recognize this. I would suggest that we try one more time. We appeal for sanctions to be imposed against Bangladesh. And I know that there is that conversation has started within the United Kingdom. How far it will go has yet to be seen. But equally, I would like people to start understanding the basis of partitions. And that's a conversation which I think is worth starting. The whole partition principle whereby the Western powers partitioned Bharat, trifurcated it. The assumption was that the minority communities were not safe from these savage Hindus who were the majority. And so we must give them safe haven in their own homelands and let's slash Bharat into three pieces so that the minorities can be safe. And what's happened in those minorities that Great Britain created? The Hindu communities have been virtually erased both in Pakistan which was created by Britain. And in Bangladesh, we are seeing this unfold immediately in front of our eyes. That too was created by Britain. If they felt that partition is a valid principle and the world has never objected to it, but has chosen to accept its legal status, then surely there is a case for those 2.9 million acres to be partitioned and given back to Hindus as a safe haven, as a safe land within Bangladesh. Why should Bangladesh not be partitioned on that basis? It's a conversation that needs to be had. And the Hindu community needs to start to have this conversation. Otherwise, what uh, the future holds, it's certainly not bright for us. Very, very good proposition that uh, the same principle on which India was partitioned should be applied to Bangladesh as well. In fact, that's what uh, Dr. Shama Prasad Mukherjee suggested way back in 1949. But our blunder boy, the great Jawaharlal Nehru, ended up signing the Liaquat Nehru Pact. Uh, and uh, actually uh, handed over the care of the Hindu minorities in Bangladesh to the same savages who were actually persecuting them. Uh, that's one wonderful way of uh, protecting your own people. However, there's also one other very disquieting development, and that is that uh, the only political leader of consequence who has uh, publicly condemned the violence against Bangladeshi Hindus, the only Hindu political leader of consequence is Tulsi Gabbard. And nobody from India, actually. So, of course, a lot of Sanjay other uh, people who have. But uh, as far as political leaders of consequence are concerned, the only one who has condemned is, is Tulsi Gabbard from the United States. 
nobody from India. So, Deji, we applauded the appointment of people like um, Jitesh Gaudiya to the House of Lords. You know, we applauded the presence of Lord Dolakia, of uh, Dolla Puppet, of um, uh, Baroness Varma as being Hindu voices in Parliament. And yet there has been stonewall silence. None of the parliamentarians have taken a stance and said, yes, we will stand for this. We will not stand for this. We are now going to try and move the British Parliament to, uh, to act on this basis. So it's not um, something peculiar to the, uh, the Bharatiya parliamentarians. It's something that seems to happen to our Hindu brethren who we support to put them into positions of power and influence, who once they get up there, the rarefied atmosphere seems to be oxygen deficient and their thinking processes as far as loyalty to Hindus are concerned seem to become confused and muddled. It is, it's a, an issue that needs to be resolved. Here in the UK, um, probably in 2022, the Hindu community is getting together to reconsider and re-evaluate, to do some course correction and project um, understanding of how our structures here in the UK do not serve us. What are our weaknesses? And we have to rectify those. And one of those weaknesses is that we do not have a strong Hindu voice in the British um, administration. We like to think Rishi Sunak is a Hindu and Priti Patel is a Hindu and so on. But um, I would say skin in the game is really what uh, decides who is a Hindu and who isn't. And skin in the game means defending the boundary, finding the Seema and saying, yes, we stand shoulder to shoulder with our Hindu brothers and sisters and daughters, especially at times like this. And we will do everything in our power and use our influence to protect Hindus. If that's not happening, then we, we really do need to question who is a Hindu um, politician, who is a Hindu voice, who is a Hindu supporter. It's not enough to take the Bhagavad Gita into parliament, place your hand on it and make an oath uh, on that basis and then proudly declare your Hindu credentials. When the contents of that very Gita require you to function in a particular way to perform a service to Dharma, that is the, requ the requirement and we're not seeing it. We have to make it happen. Vibhuti ji, uh, on Tulsi Gabbard, I think one has to appreciate uh, her coming out, not coming out just once, but uh, she came out yesterday, she's come out today again. And uh, uh, you think uh, that she is uh, going to make a difference? Tulsi Gabbard has made a name for herself and has clarified the position. Very proud of her. And not only me. I'm not saying this because she is taking a stand pro-Hindu or pro-India. No. She has taken a stand against her own party. She mm. is loved and liked by many, many, many non-Hindus. And many mainstream Americans are saying that the corruption and debauchery in both political parties to silence an honest voice or a good person is visible. For all that we know, I do not know how the shape of things will be, but I think she will emerge as a very strong third party candidate next season because the existing cadre of leadership that exists in America, to say the least, is pathetic. And, uh, you know, I mean, Kamala Harris has become a joke as much as we may, you know, <laughs> try to laugh with her or guffaw with her. But she is a goddamn joke right now. You know, she even got child actors to do a space scripted scene. It was so 
sad. I mean, let me put it this way. I'm not happy at her discomfiture, but I'm totally disappointed with her antics. Joe Biden is what he is, you know, like the Democratic Party has no leadership, unfortunately. The, what you said was very accurate and very correct and very disappointing at the same time. That in India itself, we are living in a world of denial sometimes, you know, like we are indeed. Sometimes it, it takes an event to shock you or make you understand the meaning of the word. This is one event that I realize that Indian politicians are in denial are probably people of India who are looking at leadership. And I'm not criticizing Modi ji. He has been a gift to this Hindu community because I'm giving him credit for that. Unfortunately, I'll tell this. I tweeted this and I'll say this again here today. I reckon we did a, did a, we did a asset and balance, liability balance sheet for his work, right? And we saw the achievements that he has made. But his silence on Bangladesh, his silence on Bengal Karikarta killings, Sadhu killings, commenting about Shabana Azmi's, uh, you know, supposed accident, fake accident, whatever, to pay sympathy there. You know, where is this prime minister? I want him. I want him, Mr. Modi. You know that the world loves you. The Indians love you. Your supporters love you. It's time you may raise the voice of demanding reciprocity from Islam and Christianity towards Sanatan Dharma. Demanding reciprocity is key. It's, it's a very essential element of the political life right now. Demand reciprocity. If you do not demand reciprocity, people will take us for granted. And we can't be in denial. We are facing an existential threat. It's not that 1.3 billion people will evaporate or vanish. Sanatan Dharma will live. Last week, Dr. Uh, HUA president was talking about that. Sanatan will live. and But I said, where? Will it live in India? Or will it live elsewhere? Sindhis are homeless. We are being, you know, we are being cut open from various sides. Our temples are being looted. Where, where will Sanatan survive? In the mines? Great. Julia Roberts? Yes. Will Smith? Yes, perhaps. Thanks to Jaggi Gurudev. But the point of the matter here is that it is for us to know. And today, fortunately, and I have, we have talked about it in the past, science and technology is our biggest ally, is our biggest ally. We have to question the very basis, the way they question our idol worshipping. It's time for us to ask a reciprocal question. Hey, which one of you has seen heaven or hell? Who, what passport or visa are you issuing for heaven or hell, for a confession or a jihad? Where are those 72 beautiful hoods? You know, let's begin to question the very validity of their assertions and claims. If we don't, we sit, sit back and watch. We let them criticize our Sanatan practices. We don't ask any questions of them. It's time for us to begin to ask those simple questions. Going, going, going back to Einstein, it takes to break down a complex problem into simple questions and you have a solution. If we do not get up and arise and ask those simple questions, we will continue to be obliterated. And this is what, is, what I'm angry about because there is so much virtue and beauty in our own prescriptions and our own way of life. I have said this to American friends and I say this to Muslim friends. You need to accept one principle of Hinduism 
and you will have peace around the world. And that is acceptance and respect for anything, whatever you pray to, whoever you pray to, however you pray to, or you pray or don't. But remember, it's what you do that defines you. If we are not able to inculcate or argue that position, then it's our weakness. Who are we going to blame then if we are not able to make our own stand? Okay, we'll have the closing remarks from Pandit uh, Satish Sharmaj and then we'll move to audience questions. Gee, um, I'm speaking here from London and this week <coughs> we have witnessed the assassination, the Islamist assassination of a member of parliament. And there is no question that ideology plays a part in this. We have seen ideology wreaking havoc on Hindus in every corner of the world. We saw the dissolving global Hindutva conference, which was intended to do nothing other than seed hatred for Hindus. There is on the 30th of this month, another conference, an ac a pseudo academic conference, which is going to be held at Wolverhampton University, which is doing exactly the same. It's producing the proposition that EVR Ramasamy, Periyar as he is known by his supporters, contributed to the global political thought space and he is being presented as a protector of human rights here in the united kingdom and we all know what his history was but the intention is clearly to seed hatred for hindus here and the ideology that promotes this hatred we have to call it out now you know i often think that if humanity is to survive the next 40 or 50 years we need to arrange for one generation to be protected from clerics. If there's one occupation which has contributed to the greatest degree of human suffering and violence in the name of an invisible man in the sky, it is the cleric. If we can protect clerics from young children for one generation, I think humanity may survive because it's these clerics who are promoting the ideology of hatred and violence. And if we can't recognize that, then we are all in a great deal of trouble. I think the Sanatani family, the Hindu family, we have a responsibility. We have been blessed with a darshan of what dharma is. And it's only us who can recognize a dharma. The people who are inflicting violence upon us do so because they think it's natural and right. They don't know that what they're doing is adharmic. They do not know the karmic impact of doing these things. So it's time for us to step up and not be handcuffed with this sattvic ahankar that uh, prevents us from responding in the manner that we need to respond. We have to step up and do everything that is necessary to protect our family first so that we can protect humanity and society as a whole. That is our responsibility. And uh, the sooner we take it, the sooner we'll be able to start to see a lessening of violence. Right. And uh, on that note, we move to the audience questions and before that i make my request to please share this video to like it to 